You might like to just stay standing for a moment. Not to, no, don't complain. There's no complaints. Come on. Because that last song was a beautiful song. It led us right into a place of adoration and humbling before God. We're going to just change the pace a little bit as we come to the message. What I want you to do is kind of stand uh, with your feet about as far apart as your shoulders are so that you can just kind of move your balance from one side to the other. Have your hands loose at your side. And uh, if I say move to your right, we'll just do it quickly, two or three steps to the right. If it's not a game. I'm doing this for a reason. And if I ask you, I'm just going to be careful I don't go off the stage. If I ask you to go to the left, just two or three paces across to the left. Don't worry if I do go off, it'll just be a stage I'm going through. There. There's another good line. Okay, are you ready? All right, so. Now, if you don't participate, um, Lauren's at the door tonight making sure you sign up for Refresh. She's also going to thump any of you that don't. So, yeah, okay. All right, we're going to go this way just quickly. Beautifully done. And back to the centre. Just get your feet kind of ready. Here we go. We're going this way. Lovely. Nice work, Michael. I like what you're doing. And now we're just going to add one more layer of complication. As you do it, just as you get to that position, I want you to go like this. Uh, with your head looking up to the lights or the ceiling or whatever it is. So here we are. Uh, our legs are kind of ready to go. We're going to go this way. Are you ready? We're going this way and looking. Okay, you can sit down because when I was at Teachers College, which is a few years ago now, one of the ways I earned a few dollars on the weekend was by doing some goal umpiring in one of the local football leagues, which is basically what you've just been training to do. Okay, move to your left, move to your right, watch where the ball's going. It was fantastic because as I was at Teachers College and learning how to teach, I also, in the process of being a goal umpire, learnt a whole lot of new adjectives. And it was, this is, this is the way it works. For example, if you were adjudicating a close decision, let's say the ball just flew right over the top of the post or appeared to fly over the top of the post, the law, the, the, uh, the laws of football say it's a point, if it's over the goalpost, of course. Uh, it's not a goal, it's a point. As, it's as if it hit the post. But what would almost inevitably happen was that the attacking team, who were very keen that it should be a goal, would come and get right in your face and they say, it was a goal, you stupid, and use a whole heap of adjectives. And so over the course of a few years, I learned a whole lot of new words uh, described using the most colourful and emotive descriptions. On occasions, they disparaged my eyesight, my decision and the uniform that I was wearing, my parents, my ancestry. They described me as a body part, usually with the suffix whole added to it, and they would sometimes describe what, I thought, what they thought I should go and do to myself, which if I was given to arguing, I would have said was anatomically impossible. <laughs> however, however, in that context, it's never wise to argue. You've got to apply the Madagascar principle. Smile and wave. <laughs> That's all you've got to do. Just smile and wave. And uh, wait for the next decision to see if they could come up with any more graphic 
descriptive adjectives. Now this evening I want to talk with you about what the Bible calls filthy language. We're just kind of taking a pause between finishing our series on Philippians uh, before we move into the book of Colossians. But tonight we're actually going to draw just from one verse in Colossians and I'm doing this intentionally because when we get to this in the book of Colossians, the package of stuff around it is just so rich, it's deserving of a message on, it own, on its own. But this message itself is a standalone, just speaking about filthy language. And I want to do that because I kind of suspect that it's become more common, even amongst Christian young people, to use what would once have been called swear words or offensive language or strong language, right? You are as familiar with that as I am. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, Paul says these words, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. So he uses some pretty strong words there. Uh, Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. And in this passage that we will come back to in time, Paul is writing to the Colossian church reminding them that in Christ you have been called to a whole new way of life. And that new way of life has changed priorities and changed emphasis. It has a whole raft of differences, including the kind of language that you use. And we will come back to this passage in a few weeks, but this evening, as I say, focus on, uh, on that word filthy language. What does it actually mean when Paul says, rid yourself of filthy language? What is it? Well, it's not actually that many years ago that if you were watching a movie on television, it would have said something like this. You're probably familiar with these words. The following program contains coarse language which may offend some viewers. You've been there? Familiar with that? Nowadays, you're more likely to have a warning about strong language, which is a rather interesting change, isn't it? It used to be offensive language, now it's strong language. I always thought strong language was language that conveyed meaning in a strong way, not necessarily in in an offensive way. However, we have to think about what defines offensive, don't we? Tonight we're going to have to be fairly graphic in describing some of the words that make up filthy language and I'm a bit concerned that we're recording this service and so what I say tonight is going to be recorded forever and become public from this day onwards. So I'm going to try avoiding uh, as best I can using some of the words. You will know the words that I mean, we will allude to those. You don't need to whisper them or repeat them or shout them out thinking I don't know. (laughs) Um, It'll be okay. Uh, So the warning tonight is this, the following sermon contains language that might be offensive to some congregation members. (laughs) And you might have to cover Harry's ear from time to time, Bethany, I'll let you know when that's the case. But here's the question. (laughs) Might have to cover your ears too now that I think about it as well, but anyway. Here's the question, what makes language offensive for some people and not for others? Or another question, what is it that makes some language offensive and other language that's not. Is it just a matter of cultural conditioning or is it just a matter of the context that we're in? 
Here's another question. Is there a benchmark that God has for us where God says, those words are off limit, those words are okay? You know, you can use those ones because they're found in the Bible. You can't use these ones because they're not. That kind of question. And then we have to understand the difference between swearing and filthy language because sometimes we use those words as synonyms, kind of meaning the same, don't we? What's the difference? Well, in the English Bible, swearing, when that word is used, almost always means uh, taking an oath or swearing an oath or invoking the name of God in terms of, uh, of an oath or, or some kind of a promise or something like that. It's not what the Bible would call filthy language, that's something different. But a, uh, when a person swears, it means that they're taking an oath or making a promise in that they will accept the consequences of that oath. So back in the Old Testament, for example, someone might, have say, might say, you know, by the name of Almighty God, if by the end of today this has not happened, then I will take the consequences. There's illustrations that you can find of that kind of stuff in the Old Testament. That's not our topic today. I'm not going to get into that area this evening. The point is that I want to make uh, swearing and filthy language are two different things in the Scriptures. We might use the word swearing for filthy language, but when the Bible talks about swearing, it's talking about making a promise or taking an oath. It's quite different. So what we're going to do is talk about filthy language in three categories, and I'll give you the three categories now, see if you go how you go remembering these three categories. The first one is religious. The second one is a word that possibly won't be familiar to you, but it will be by the end of the night, scatological. And the third one is sexual. There's three categories. Religious words that would be considered filthy language, scatological words, and I'll explain what that means in a moment, and sexual. You can probably figure out what some of those are. Those of you who are familiar with um, the Old Testament might know that back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, the third commandment, we are told that we should not use the name of the Lord in vain. What does that mean? Don't use the name of the Lord in vain. Don't misuse the name of God. Newer translations actually do say that. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. And in that context, in the context of Exodus chapter 8, God is prohibiting the use of his name when taking a lying oath. So, for example, if I was to stand before you tonight and say, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, tomorrow I'm going to travel to Darwin that would be misusing the name of the Lord because tomorrow I'm not travelling to Darwin. I have no plans to travel to Darwin. I might be trying to convince you that I'm travelling to Darwin, but the truth is I'm not going there. So invoking the name of God to try and convince you of that would be a misuse of the name of God. And equally in the scripture, and true for us too, if you knew what you were saying was untrue, if you're covering up a deception then it's considered sinful to use the name of God to try and convince people that it might have been otherwise. So using the Lord's name in the wrong way. Now that's one aspect of it. When I was growing up though, I thought not using the name of the Lord in vain meant not using the name of Jesus as a swear word because lots of people did that. And you've probably heard people who would do that too if we can use that language for a moment. To that end using words like Jesus Christ if you hit your thumb with a hammer or crying out God Almighty uh, if you were frustrated was seriously off limits in our home and for very good reason because it was taking God's name and using it in the wrong way. 
And I suspect, although I don't think this is explicit in the third commandment there in Exodus, uh, it could be extended to that kind of use in the same way that we're not to use God's name to perpetuate a lie or use God's name to try and convince others that something's not true as being true, then it's inappropriate to use the name of God as an as a expletive, as a means of venting frustration or anger. It's a misuse of the name of God. But more than that, have you considered that there's actually a spiritual dynamic at work here? Because I think Satan's delighted when people misuse the name of Jesus, when Jesus becomes a common word just used and thrown into conversations, or when people put on their, uh, on their text, OMG or whatever it might be, you know, what is that all about? It's just cheapening the name of God, isn't it? And God's very jealous about his name. God is very protective of his name. There are other words too that fall into the religious category used more freely by Christians. Words like damn and hell come to mind. You know, had a hell of a week. I've lost that damn thing again. Those kind of uses of words that are very common and you've probably heard them if not used them, uh, we have to ask ourselves, is there a problem with those kinds of words? And I want to put it to you, actually there is, you know, because those words are describing some of the central planks of Christian theology. And by using those words in that manner, we're actually belittling those things or cheapening those things. We are making light of something that God says is very serious. And so there are definitely some... Uh, some words in the religious sphere that should be off limits for anyone who is a follower of Christ. That's the first category. The second category, that word I used, scatological. Now, let's explain that. The word scatological is actually from the Greek word skatos, which means excrement. So you can understand where our conversation is about to go, right? Straight to the toilet. This is going to get a bit messy, so hold on to your seats. And breathe in deep. Every parent, those of you who are parents or will one day be parents, have a decision to make. Which words are you going to use to describe the normal bodily functions in terms of waste elimination? That's a complicated way of saying. How are you going to teach your children uh, the right words to use when they need to go to the toilet? And... <laughs> Generally speaking, some of you are finding this hilarious because I'm pretty sure you've got all sorts of ideas and you've probably used plenty of them. I think, Royce, you've been there recently. Um, we use euphemisms all the time. A euphemism is a kind of word to cover up something. We don't want to use a particular word. Um, I've never met a parent yet who said to their one-and-a-half-year-old, um, who, who, give, give me a name, someone... Brendan, okay, Brendan, the one-and-a-half-year-old Brendan, and I'm Brendan's dad, and I say to the one-and-a-half-year-old Brendan, come on, Brendan, it's time to go and sit on the potty and defecate for a while, okay? We use euphemisms all the time. We substitute the technically correct word using other words. Husbands and wives do this when it comes to sexual intimacy. No husband's going to go to his wife and say, hey, darling, do you feel like having sexual intercourse tonight or have you got a headache still? Uh, you use a euphemism, making love. You know, we do that all the time. So the question uh, becomes, which words should we use? In terms of bodily functions, let me really go out on a limb here. When I was growing up, my parents chose the words to do a poo. Go and do a poo. It's 
been on advertising recently, you know, the bowel cancer stuff. What are you going to do this weekend? Well, no, we won't go there. Um, (laughs) uh, If you wanted to urinate, go and do a wee. Or if you were experiencing flatulence, which is the technically correct word, um, it was always, did someone do a smell? (laughs) Man, that used to annoy me. I had a brother and a father and, look, seriously... The euphemism, do a smell, never captured the joy or the entertainment of trying to outdo each other in this regard, I tell you. (laughs) There has to be a better word than that, but it was always outside the presence of my mother, I might just hasten to say. Here's the question. If we abandon the technically correct words, such as urination or defecation in favour of euphemisms, What makes one more appropriate than the other? You know, which word do you choose? And publicly, which words are okay and which may not be okay? In one sense, it's actually arbitrary. Theoretically, uh, no word is better or worse in this respect for for those bodily functions. Let me tell you, uh, when we were in Papua New Guinea, I keep coming back to these illustrations because they're so rich and earthy. You know, if you if you said, um, you know, I need to go to the toilet or something like that, the person would say, oh, you'd like go piss piss. Man, if I'd said that to my mother, she would have died on the spot and I would have been grounded for six months. But that's the word in that language. In practice, we generally choose words that enable us, or prevent us, I should say, uh, words that enable us avoiding giving offence, preventing someone else being offended, don't we? We choose words that will not cause someone else to be offended. And so technically, while one word might be no better than another in describing something, the way we choose our words always need, and this is the message for Christians, always need to be done with love and wisdom and consideration for others. So I'll say that again. In terms of bodily functions, one word may or may not be better than another. And different cultures use different words, of course. Uh, But when it comes to choosing the words to use in our context, it must always be done with wisdom and love and consideration. This principle comes from Romans chapter 14, where Paul gave the Roman Christians some really helpful advice about not causing offence. And there's some parallel here between what Paul was talking about in terms of exercising freedoms. Because Paul was saying, you know, if you're exercising of your freedom, you're free. You're not under the law. You can exercise your freedom. But if exercising your freedom causes someone else to stumble, you're not acting in love. If your freedom means that you cause someone else some sort of offence, no matter whether offence is, you know, reasonable or not, if it's causing someone else offence, you're not acting in love. And so, for example, if I was sitting down there behind um, Danielle and Sam tonight and uh, singing away and I could not sing in tune no matter how I tried and these guys are trying to sing in tune and I think, you know, I'm free, I'm just going to yell out to the Lord in E-flat major or whatever it is and we're singing in A minor. You know, this is just going to cause a problem. I have to exercise love, don't I? Bad example, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? Whatever we do, we need to exercise love for other people. And so we might limit ourselves and choose our language so that we don't cause offence for other people, that we don't cause someone else to stumble. 
So in light of that, uh, as Paul said, we are to do whatever we can to work for peace in our relationship with others and for the building up of others. That means curtailing our language, that means being careful that we don't cause offence and in doing that we are acting in love. Now, having talked a little bit about some of those scatological words, let me just speak for a moment about the common practice in our society for some people to use the euphemisms that we uh, use for this particular category as insults. You know, someone will say, you are a real whatever, or you're as weak as so-and-so. There's a problem there, isn't there? Because it suggests that those words are used intentionally to cause offence. And if you use those words intentionally to cause offence, then you're not acting in love. And likewise, if they're just part of your language and you don't have any concept of the impact it's having on someone else, that suggests to me that you're not exercising self-control. And self-control is named as one of the fruits of the Spirit. And so uh, we as Christians need to be mindful of that. So we've talked about the religious uh, category, we've talked about the scatological category, let's talk about the sexual and this one probably doesn't need a lot of explanation. There's lots of words that fit into this category, some that refer to the genitals, both males and females and others to various body parts, specifically the anus. And again, while learning talk pizen, uh, I had to get past the fact that... Um, that uh, in that language, your bottom, which was the correct word that my mother taught me, was ass. And again, if I'd used that word in front of my mother, she would have died. Now, I personally don't have a big problem whether you uh, describe to describe, uh, choose to describe your posterior as your bottom or your bum or your backside or your ass or whatever it might be, remembering the caution about not being offensive. But... In this area, being uh, intentional, <laughs> setting out intentionally to disparage or belittle somebody, describing them as one of these body parts would be wrong and not at all honouring of God. Now, having said that, I want to speak really bluntly and plainly and straight for a few moments about two other words that fit into this category, words that I think should be seriously off limits for everybody, whether they're Christians or not. One of them starts with F, the other starts with C. They're often used together. I'm astonished that these words have got so much traction in our society and I suspect it's part of a sign of where we are as a community because both of them are euphemisms for something else. The first for the act of sexual intercourse. The second one for female genitals. And therein lies the problem. And it's a serious problem, and I speak straight with you about this tonight. One of the undeniable consequences of the fall has been the manner in which women are treated in our world and in our society. And our language reflects that. And this language reflects that. There's an article that I read on this by a fellow by the name of Bob Jones who used this example. I'll quote it here. He said, a heterosexual male customer is looking for something on the shelves of a shop. A voice behind him says, can I help you, sir? He turns around to face a drop-dead gorgeous female shop assistant. His immediate instinctive reaction is crammed into a split second but consists of the following. I don't know who you are. 
what your name is or where you come from. I don't know anything about your family or education. I don't know about your relationships or your life experiences. I don't know your achievements or failures, your strengths or your weaknesses, your hopes, fears, dreams or ambitions, your joys and hurts, your disappointments. I don't know about your gifts and talents and personality, personality traits. And what's more, I'm not remotely interested in any of them. I just love to have sex with you. And instantaneously, if he is a Christian, the hair-trigger mental shudder which was installed at adolescence slams down at this point and he politely asks for her help or he tells her that he's just browsing. But, Joan says, the demon presence since the fall is still lurking there and it consists of an urge to treat women as disposable sex objects to be used and discarded and the language that I'm talking about right now uh, highlights that. Both words that we speak about just now reveal to us a worldview which sees women as worthless, as commodities to be used, enjoyed and discarded like an empty chocolate packet. And to think of sex as something that a man does to a woman or against a woman because he can and chooses to. Now you think about this for a moment. This is, I know, a little uncomfortable for some. Think about how these words are used. If something's broken down, it's described as F, right? What is that actually communicating? By implication, without realising it, the person who uses that word to describe the broken machine or whatever is belittling the act of sexual intimacy as well as the female participant. If in anger those words are used together in reference to whatever it is, the implication is that it's junk and hopeless and only fit to be thrown away. If a person is described using those words, the intention is that they understand that they are a figure of contempt and a target of aggression. Now, I personally believe that as Christians we should stand and say that neither the act of sexual intimacy nor any other person should ever be referred to using that sort of language. Even if I was speaking to the Rotary Club of Wodonga or the Wodonga Senior Secondary High School, I would say exactly what I'm saying to you here tonight. This is not a Christian message, this part of what I'm speaking about. These two words are gravely degrading and dehumanising dehumanizing to women, belittling and uh, offensive and it could, of course, be argued, you know, those words are just used without that intention. They're not used to cause that effect. They're subconsciously just words that we use. But here's the problem. They subconsciously reinforce this worldview that women are to be abused and used and that the act of sex is something that men do against someone else. And so, guys, if I can talk to you for a second, if this is part of your language, deal with it. Because it is totally outside what God would want for you. Recognise just how demeaning that language is. That young men in our society treat women in the manner that they do in this way is abhorrent. The other thing I'd say to young women too, because I hear it on television and other contexts too, ladies, if you're using that sort of language too, think about what it means. Really? Do you really want that to be perpetuated? It's that serious. There's a few other words that are commonly used in our culture that have sexual overtones. 
I'll use the technically correct ones here. This will go down in history as probably the first time this has ever been said from the pulpit. The word bastard's often used as a term of endearment. The word bugger, of course, um, which uh, technically means anal intercourse, was popularised by Toyota a few years ago. You know, as a general rule, just taking on board everything that I've said here now, I think we need to be really mindful about the use of those kinds of words too and what they mean and how they're used. I kind of wanted to say to um, those, uh, those guys on the football field all those years ago, do you know, guys, I'm at Teachers College and what I've learned is there's 170,000 words in the English language. You might want to go and buy yourselves a dictionary because the ones that you're using, you're overusing. There's plenty of other words that we can use to express affection or whatever it might be. So what to say by way of conclusion now that I've laid that on you? Well, when Paul wrote to the Colossian church, he said that in light of your salvation, you need to rid yourselves as, uh, of things such as anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language. Now that says to me that filthy language is not some small thing. It's in some pretty heavy company, isn't it? Anger, rage, malice, slander, they're big things. They're things that are abhorrent to God. God hates that stuff. And filthy language is right there in amongst it. In the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul said, Do not allow unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. There's something which is at the other end of the scale, isn't it? Don't use that language. Use language that's going to build others up, that's going to grow people, edify people, help them, build them up. And if we are inclined to be given to foul or filthy language, everything you say becomes tainted. Let's face it, people who are known for using obscene language have a reputation, don't they? They're known for their words. If this sort of language is characteristic of a person, if their tongue is used to verbally tear down or shock or abuse or cause others to cringe and they're either not conscious of it or they've chosen not to change it, it's a sign that their tongue is not under control and there's a problem there. And the Bible's very clear about the power that the tongue has both to build up and tear down and for that reason the psalmist prayed these words. These are great words. Psalm 141 verse 3 said, A guard over my mouth, O Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. And in Psalm 34, recognising the wisdom that's found there, the psalmist says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. There's much through the Proverbs and through the Psalms about the tongue and words and language. And a final encouragement from Colossians, this book that we're going to come and spend some time in, from Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your conversations always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversations be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. That means healthy, good building up, uh, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's pray and uh, reflect on some of those thoughts. Father, we're mindful tonight that um, your word has some stuff in it that's very practical and very down to earth for us in terms of how we are to live, how we are to behave and tonight as we've been reflecting how we are to speak. 
And Lord, we recognise that we live in a time where, in terms of our own society, the boundaries around the use of language have continued to change and words that once upon a time would have caused dreadful offence are now commonly thrown around uh, without a second thought. But we have, in our reflections tonight, Lord, recognised that in sometimes subtle and often not so subtle ways, they are very demeaning and very belittling and perpetuate attitudes that are very ungodly. Lord, we would gather tonight as a people who don't always get this right and I don't stand before this congregation as a saint in this regard either. We do pray that you will help us to put a guard on our lips, that you will help us to... Uh, focus on the encouragement of your word to engage in wholesome talk, talk that will build up others. Be mindful of the impact that our words have. Be careful in what we say, measured in how we say it. Considerate of others, exercising love in all contexts, especially in our speech, in our actions too, of course. But we thank you, Father, that uh, you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us. We don't have to do this alone. And so I pray for anyone here tonight who may find this a bit of a challenge, who recognise perhaps that this is an area of life that needs to be brought under control, that with the gentle encouragement, presence and help of your Holy Spirit, you can make us clean in this way too. And so we ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.